You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And today we are talking about what happens when people on Wall Street start getting addicted to drugs and missing work. (laughs) And this all happens at their home. So we're calling it their Stockholm Syndrome. Which is short for stockbroker homebody syndrome. Exactly. Just kidding. We're actually talking about the real Stockholm Syndrome out of Stockholm, Sweden. And this is the the most curious phenomenon out of Sweden since ABBA. (laughs) (laughs) Shane, have you ever been held against your will? I've had jobs that felt like that. (laughs) I was going to make a joke about I was that way until I was 18, but... Just kidding. Not to be little my parents. Yeah, either way it works. My mom's great. <laughs> Ooh. This is a fairly sensitive topic. At least elements of it are. And we're dealing with people who have suffered some kind of trauma, especially in situations where they're being held captive. And for those who don't already know, of course, Stockholm Syndrome refers to finding sympathy for your captor and engaging in behavior that creates a positive relationship with that captor and often identifying with their motives and defending them. And so we got to ask the question, why does this happen? Why would anybody do that? Yeah. And so what we'll find is that some psychologists and police officials and professionals will specifically say this phenomenon is pretty uncommon. We have to ask the question too, could it be used intentionally or could it be something that is a a tool or a weapon that captives or hostages can use in hostage crisis situations? Or it might be something that's happening within an abusive relationship that might prevent the person from coming into more harm. So as we start talking about this, we're going to find that it's not quite as clear as as you might think it is. And there are a lot of variables that contribute to this possible phenomenon. Yeah. And so as you said, just the one thing to expand upon here in terms of this, the situations in which this occurs is essentially, as we mentioned, any situation really where you are being held against your will, or you have been restrained or detained, or you are otherwise stuck in a situation with another person that seems to be where this this term is most broadly applied and that can include or is often referred to in in situations where as you mentioned that sort of domestic abuse of people who are afraid or they identify with their abuser and are unwilling to leave those situations even when uh, an attempt is made to rescue them yeah so to kind of start, you know, because we do want to kind of we want to do this topic justice. We want to make sure we really get into it. We want to start with the history and provide kind of an overview of where it even came from, because it is a very specific, just like any psychological phenomenon or just any kind of like syndrome in general. There's always a story. So we're going to get into the story of this. The origin story of Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> they were out late one night and Stockholm Syndrome was walking with his parents and a career criminal came up with a gun oh that's batman (laughs) ah thanks joe chill (laughs) so the origin of this is in 1973 there was this career criminal oh how would we pronounce this in swedish jan Jan, Jan eric olsen jan eric olsen um i tried i probably butchered that i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sure that's a common name too or some part of it anyway So Olsen, I'm going to say, took four people hostage with an accomplice, and then there was a standoff that ensued. But when the standoff ended six days later, there was evidence that a positive relationship had formed between the hostages and those captors that were holding them hostage. Yeah, and one of the hostages spoke with the Swedish prime minister on behalf of the captors during the standoff to request a getaway car and to be allowed to run away with them. I would imagine that at that time, that's probably very jarring to hear like, oh, you want to, okay, yeah, we'll we'll talk. And then all of a sudden you want to go too? Like it feels kind of odd, right? Maybe they were actually accomplices all along. Yeah, that's it's like Inside Man, which is another great movie. <laughs> What was interesting about this, though, is that when they were interviewing and they were talking to these folks, you know, they had become friendly or the people holding them hostage had become friendly with the hostages themselves. And the hostages appeared to be more afraid of the police attacking the bank and causing the hostages to die. So there are all these other factors that contributed to this particular phenomenon. But what was interesting was that positive relationship between the captors and the hostages themselves. Yep. And hence was born ABBA. Just kidding. <laughs> Dancing queen. <laughs> Do we get the rights to that for this episode? Sure. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Definitely not. All right. So the etymology of this term, Stockholm Syndrome, I mean, it's fairly straightforward, as you might imagine, but the phrase was specifically coined by criminologist and psychiatrist Niels Pijarot. 
Bejarat? Yes. Okay, great. Niels B. And he defined it for the FBI and for the Scotland Yard. There's not a widely accepted diagnostic criterion for this, but sometimes you'll hear this talked about in circles where they talk about terror bonding or trauma bonding, where, you know, people go through this really intense experience and they create these lifelong or these really intense personal relationships with folks that are also involved in that situation. And that's probably an episode that we could probably get into entirely. We could probably just dive into that one day, but you'll hear this described in the same circles as terror bonding or trauma bonding. Now, Just as you pointed out, because there aren't accepted diagnostic criteria, that means that you can't be diagnosed with Stockholm Syndrome, that you will not find this diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the United States Diagnostic Manual, or in the ICD, which we did an episode on, not that specifically, but on diagnosing mental health problems, we did an episode on, and we talked about this, the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems sort of manual that's ginormous and probably comes in a multi-volume set. What is important to note here is the fact that when because this definition does not have diagnostic criteria, that means that it's going to have some fuzzy boundaries. Right. So let's go ahead and take a look then at the actual incident that kind of yielded this phenomenon that sparked the interest of the psychologist in this scenario. So an early analysis of this started with stripping a hostage of all free reign of basic necessities, lights, and that's kind of what this ha- this is how it starts. You know, so the captor has the hostage. They strip the hostage of all their free reign, all their necessities, all their rights, all their liberties as part of a traumatic experience to the point where they need permission to do nearly anything. So what ends up happening is that person has no autonomy, nowhere to go. They have to follow the captor's guidelines. And so then what ends up happening within that is it's small acts of kindness, like being given food or prompts, a pri- uh, you know, something along those lines. You hear like a general kindness that leads to kind of the start of these smaller variables or these items that happen within that relationship that kind of create or occasion that positive relationship. I think the first time you said that things that were taken away from them included their rights, I think you said lights. And I was just thinking like Christmas lights or... Maybe they're in a dark well and they get lotion. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. All right. So anyway, as you said that what ends up happening is that the captor who was first depriving them of all those things is now sort of a benefactor. They're the source of life and some of their liberty and freedoms. And so this can inadvertently breed some compassion for the captor. And so you can think of this also sort of, there's this idea in behavioral economics that is this closed economy. And essentially what that means is that transactions only occur in a very specific context and usually with a very specific person, and they're not available at all outside of that context. And thinking about this in terms of, as I said, the captor becomes the benefactor, which means that they are a source of relief. They are a source of reward. They are the thing that you associate with benefit. And even though you don't necessarily think to yourself like, oh, that is my benefactor, there is this sort of implicit association that forms that becomes a, I guess, I, I always struggle to use the word unconscious, but I guess you're willing to move toward it without hesitation. We'll put it that way. Right. Even though that person has put you in a really tough spot. Exactly. So that's what's happening here. Somebody puts you in a bad spot, then they start kind of showing you a little bit of kindness. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to move towards that because that's my source. That's my reward. Right. What ends up happening within this too is that there are a lot of professionals out there that claim these cases are rare, mostly or perhaps because not everyone has afforded a long enough opportunity to develop that relationship with their captor. Maybe hostage standoffs don't last that long. You might see these cases more in long-term or extended captivity issues or relationships that are more problematic that you might see this. But again, they still claim they're pretty rare because there's just too much nuance and there's too much variability within each of those contexts. Now, according to Britannica, Stockholm Syndrome is marked by, quote, not only a positive bond between the captor and captive, captee, and captor, but also by a negative attitude on behalf of the captive toward authorities who threatened the captor-captive relationship, end quote. Kind of bungled a little bit of that in the middle, but... Captain relationship. The captain relationship. I'm the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> And now Tom Hanks is his best friend. And that's Stockholm Syndrome. You know, we're just going to be dropping (laughs) pop culture references forever and ever. So anyway, (laughs) speaking of which, in that relationship, you're definitely going to be looking at this photograph. (laughs) (laughs) I have a Stockholm Syndrome relationship with Nickelback now. I feel that. I feel that. (laughs) 
So to get into a little bit about the different symptoms and why people find this so rare, it's important to understand what the actual symptoms of Stockholm syndrome are. So according to healthline.com, they kind of lead towards this idea of brainwashing, you know, the brainwash connotation within the description. We see that a little bit, but they do provide three specific criterion or three symptoms they look at for Stockholm syndrome. The first one is the victim develops positive feelings toward the person holding them captive or abusing them. And that's kind of a key feature of Stockholm syndrome itself is that the captive is developing a positive desired rewarding relationship with the captor. The second one is that the victim develops negative feelings toward the police or other authority figures or really anyone who might be trying to help them escape from their captor. So that I think is probably a more important criteria here when we start talking about this. It's not just the positive relationship. It's also they develop like a disdain or a distrust for the people who are going to threaten it. Right, exactly. And then the third criterion is that the victim begins to perceive their captor's humanity and believe that they have the same goals and values. So they take on the different tasks or goals of the situation. So a hostage may become an accomplice within that. Right. I mean, I think we often are very cooperative with one another. We often observe pleasantries of sort of normal social interaction and that sort of thing. And I think that when you spend enough time around someone, even if there's someone who is maybe in certain ways oppressive that you look for opportunities to cooperate with their behavior rather than being competitive with everything. And I think it's just, it's hard to overcome that, especially given that all of our normal day-to-day experiences are built around at least some amount of cooperation, even as much as we all get angry at traffic and how terrible everyone is who's driving around us. Like we are still all in that situation, cooperating with one another to follow the general rules of the road. Staying in our lane, observing relatively speed limits, stop signs, turning when it's our turn to go. Like if you can imagine how different it would be for someone who is just like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do on this freeway right now, that would be chaos. And there would be a lot of accidents probably. And we don't want chaos. We don't want chaos. You know, one thing that was not on that health line, I mean, they were talking just about symptoms, but in terms of understanding the requirement here, because I was just thinking about how broadly the term Stockholm syndrome could be applied. I think it's also worth just considering like what it means to be, I guess, being held captive or in in that relationship. Because sort of as you said, I think you could at this particular point superimpose this on things like employment. Like if you have a job with a crummy boss who's horrible to the employees and you're sort of finding yourself, even though they have put you in a lot of terrible positions, you're still maybe coming to their defense or you're identifying with them in some way. Like, does that count? Like, what does it have? What what is the criteria for calling it abuse or captivity? If someone is coercing you by holding a paycheck over your head, is that not kind of similar to like holding a gun to your head. I mean, obviously they're one of those is a lot more fatal in its outcome and a lot more dangerous. But when you have those kind of pressures, there's a metaphorically an overlap. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. And so when you start thinking about that, it's like, that's a key feature of this too, is like figuring out to what degree are we talking hostage? Like what, what constitutes a hostage situation? What constitutes a captive situation to even kind of set up the environment for that to happen. And so, that's, I think, a big part of maybe what we're missing here as we go through this. But you'll see kind of we as we highlight the, the specific Stockholm event and start getting into that, I think they use that as kind of like the exemplar for these different scenarios. So essentially, we're all going to start empathizing with COVID-19 as our captor. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get to a space where we're going to be like, listen, guys, <laughs> he's misunderstood. That's right. Screw that. Stupid COVID. Yeah. <laughs> COVID, go away. I don't like it. So. When we start talking about this Stockholm event itself, and they do a later analysis of this, the hostages were believed, and this is a quote, believed they owed their lives to the criminal pair. So as they started kind of spending more time with the captors and they started spending more time in that situation, they felt like they owed their lives to the criminals for not taking them or like they survived the situation. So they feel like they owed it to the criminals because of that. Another hostage was told that he was going to be shot, but that it would be fake and the captor would let him get drunk first. And so, again, this sort of you see this sort of playful dynamic that emerged between them. And to me, like on the surface, that sounds wild, right? Like that sounds like there's no way I would be okay with that. But when you start hearing this and you start thinking about the situation, like it is such a traumatic experience. And again, that person, that captor is the source of anything good that comes out of that situation at that point in time. And we also never know what we would do in a situation exactly like that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just unreal. So one of the quotes that came out of the situation too was a quote from one of the hostages. When he treated us well, we could think of him as an emergency God, end quote. That's heavy. Yeah. That's an intense feeling for that situation. And so in the absence of other controlling entities, do you shift your allegiances temporarily to those in charge of your fate is sort of the question here. You kind of see that happening. So like you do what you must to get out of the situation safely, right? And so this is especially true when you can't even see the police helping you outside. So your entire perspective shifts towards more survival tactics. Like you're not seeing that there are a group of people that are trying to get you out, trying to get you out safely, trying to prevent any damage. All you see is this very particular situation, this particular context with a singular person that is responsible for all the good and all the bad that happens in that moment. And so again, and this just comes back to the the question or the inquiry that I was raising earlier of thinking of any situation where your fate and your general well-being is in the hands of someone who has more power over you, whether or not it's seemingly coercive environment. And would that be a situation where we'd apply the same sort of filter in terms of understanding that relationship and that power dynamic? And I think this relates to things like prisoners who are newly incarcerated, graduate advisors, coaches, marriage, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And employment, I think, could potentially be another one. And so it's just, I think, worth asking that question because of where do we, again, sort of define and draw that line in terms of if we have a structural power dynamic, what does that mean in terms of understanding captive, captee, captor relationship? We keep talking about this one Stockholm syndrome, but we're going to go a little bit past that because it's it's important to understand kind of that context that that Abraham's asking about, like what defines captor, captive, captive, captee, whatever, captain, whatever we've decided on that. <laughs> Capitan. Capitan. So when you start kind of digging into that space and those definitions and all that, we have to be able to look at maybe this applies in different scenarios. So we see this happen a little bit too, and you'll see this kind of maybe parallel to situations with domestic violence. And just to be clear, domestic violence is awful and neither of us condone this on any level. Okay. In fact, if you or anyone you know is in a domestic violence situation, you can call a hotline to get information at 1-800-799-7233 here in the United States. Again, that is 1-800-799-7233. Even if you're not sure, like reach out for help, like they'll be able to tell you and be able to provide resources for you. Yeah, absolutely. So as we start talking about Stockholm syndrome in the context of domestic violence, what ends up happening is the abused partner develops a sense of dependency on the abusive partner. They may even develop more intense emotional attachments and also may develop some kind of resentment towards anybody who is going to separate them or get them out of that situation. And that's where you see a lot of people are afraid to or refuse to report domestic violence because they distrust others or they mistrust others. They avoid those situations. There's just a there's it gets very complex. And that's why a lot of times people can't understand why people stay in domestic violence situations. According to Healthline, emotional attachments to those inflicting sexual, physical, emotional, or even incestual abuse for years can develop the sort of Stockholm Syndrome-like relationship. And another one that's very related to this is in child abuse, unfortunately. And this is it's a hard one to hear about, and it's, it's definitely rough. But there are many situations in which the child tries to protect their parent despite enormous emotional physical or otherwise abuse and that threats often include harm or death and that the victims will engage in avoidant behavior trying to avoid that abuse just by being compliant and you'll hear them say things like don't take them away don't hurt them all that sort of stuff and it will try and stay on their side especially when they're younger and they don't know any better and abusers may show kindness which is then confused as being genuine by the person who's been victimized by their captor and this leads to mixed signals and impractical responding by those children who are very impressionable and they get this sort of intermittent sense of reward and kindness and sort of benefactor benefactee relationship that makes it unpredictable and all they know like and again this is, goes back to this idea of a closed economy they don't get that anywhere else They don't get it anywhere else. And so the only place, the only source of that, even though it's the same source of abuse, is that person. And therefore, they will will defend them. And, you know, it's not to say that we are advocating for, like, you know, raise your pitchforks and go after them. Although, maybe. 
I'm not necessarily for child abusers, especially maybe. <laughs> I guess I'm just saying here that like we need to show a lot of sensitivity to that situation for victims in that situation because they've had a rough go of it. And there is a lot of stuff to undo. That relationship becomes very entangled or entwined. Yeah. And so you end up in a situation where it's confusing. I mean, I think of situations with my daughter and her biological mother and how complex and how confusing that is because it was not a great situation. But there's like the it's just it's it becomes a very complex thing to try to navigate. So it is important to kind of take a delicate step towards understanding that relationship and understanding maybe where or I guess this is probably a really good exercise in perspective taking, like being able to take a second to understand that this person may have gone through a very complex set of things. And so being kind to that person so you can help them get through it and get to the other side. I definitely have seen people get angry at victims for standing up for or maybe not fighting against their captors as much as people think they should. And this is why I think it's important to really try and show them understanding and compassion in that situation because of what they've been through. And so like, even if you disagree with their feelings about that, or you think that they should be angry and you think that they should fight, like try and understand like what they've been through instead, like of trying to prescribe what they should do, just be there for them and be supportive. So another scenario that you might see this, and this is a pretty intense scenario is victims of sex trafficking. So unfortunately what ends up happening within these situations is that the victims will rely on the captors or the people that are, are trafficking for food, for water, for shelter, for basic human needs and basic human rights. And so what might happen is because those people who are the captors might be the only source of that reward, they start developing positive relationships with those folks. Now, positive in the sense that they have a preferred relationship or they might engage in a, in, a, in a relationship that kind of ultimately benefits them and keeps them safe. But they start having these relationships. They start having, they start defending these captors and they may actually resist opportunities to incriminate their captors as a result, which is why sometimes sex trafficking rings are so difficult to break up is because the victims might have some kind of emotion towards the captor or maybe some kind of disdain towards the police who are going to be ultimately cutting them off from some level of reward from these captors. Did you see that series, the surviving R Kelly? I have not watched it. No, it is hard to watch, but one of the worst things about it is how much, how closely it aligns with this of how many people who are still in that situation with him right now and how many more people continue to get sucked in and that they they will defend him tooth and nail. Like they refuse to leave his side. And like so few people, I guess not so few, several people have gotten out from under him, but several are still there. That's just hard. That's, that's hard to, to watch him yeah. and really see. And I think there can be a similar relationship that develops or some sports coaching, obviously not very common, but it can happen where you have really harsh coaching techniques that could become abusive. I actually never saw this movie, but I understand so we're just dropping movie references all over the place. The movie Whiplash. Did you see that one? I never saw that. No, I'm given to understand that that's essentially the relationship in that movie was you had this really abusive. It was not about sports it was about drumming, but you had this really abusive sort of coach mentee relationship that was essentially what was supposed to be going on there. But you could imagine other sports coaching having a similar thing sort of arise where they defend their coach, where they support them, even though they it turns into an abusive relationship. I'm sure there are other examples of this too. Abraham brought up the idea of maybe poor employment. I'm sure that this is happening in many different scenarios, but just kind of understanding again, like taking that perspective of just understanding where that victim may be coming from is the first step in trying to help that person get through that situation and get towards more healthy pro-social relationships. One of the downsides we have to note too is that the success from the behavior patterns that emerge while they're in captivity will often lead to difficulty with witness cooperation. So what ends up happening is when it comes time for testimony to testify against that person, especially when they're bringing about charges and especially in situations where there's domestic abuse, what you find is that the person who was the captive or the hostage usually doesn't cooperate or they don't want to cooperate because they have a hard time seeing any other situation other than the positives that came out of that particular scenario. And so I had written about this a while back in my grad school days, just really trying to think about this and break it down psychologically. And and I sort of was at the time leaning on a lot of the philosophical work inside of this and just considering that the strength 
of the outcomes in that relationship, those that are both rewarding and punishing, that those might control behavior, the behavior of the captee, the person who's being held captive, so strongly that going back to a normal environment, they never, the normal cues and experiences of the normal environment no longer really have the effect that they once did. And that you will start to see this generalization of what happened in that captive environment permeate to everything in that person's life and even expect that you'd probably look at this person's, I think a person who is a neurologist might even look at this and see differences in the way that the brain is working. And even considering that this might be something that you might call a change of that person's quote unquote personality in terms of how they behave. And so perhaps after the crisis ends, there might be inappropriate generalization of those sort of cues from their captive environment that occur for the victim. And then that victim continues to maintain the positive rapport with their capture, even though when it's no longer fundamental to their survival. You know, as a concept itself, it's a pretty powerful thing. And it's really important to understand that when we start getting into those entanglements, when we start connecting with those people and we start developing that learning history, that it's complex to undo if you can undo it. This will be a take home point when we get there, but I think it's worth pointing out now at this point in the episode in case you don't make it to the end and you should, but in case you don't, <laughs> don't take people hostage. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's a big deal. Just don't, don't like, hold people under captive. any circumstance. Yeah, yeah, don't do it. Like let people have their autonomy. It's fine. Yeah. All right. So there is a shifting perspective about this and it's something that's really important to note too within Stockholm Syndrome is that there are a lot of critics that say the term implies a criticism of weakness toward the survivor. That is basically saying that if the person is going to develop a positive relationship, then they were not strong enough to get through it. They weren't strong enough to survive. There's a lot of different criteria or you know different criticisms that they look at. And one former child captive actually said it's a survival strategy to adapt yourself to your kidnapper and to try to empathize with them in an effort to understand their thought process and even form an escape or de-escalation strategy. So in that makes to me the most sense. It's like, yeah, it's a means to an end. It's a means to get out of that situation because you have, you can literally think of nothing else except for your survival. So how do you get out of it? And yeah. And I think that just going back to the main point here that calling it Stockholm syndrome could potentially for some people imply that this is the victim's fault in some way, or that it's a weakness of character. And so I think that that's just the victim blaming thing that we want to be careful never to do. And I don't think that the term necessarily implies that, but I think that you could get there potentially just in how it has been used. Now, commanding officer and chief negotiator of the hostage negotiation team in the NYPD claims that Stockholm syndrome really is so uncommon that it probably doesn't even exist or at least he questions its existence. And so I think the instances of this are not, there may be a little bit fewer and far between, but they're not necessarily absent. We definitely see versions of this, and especially in those domestic abuse and child abuse cases. And I think the other side too, as we start evaluating this phenomenon, is that it does kind of go both ways in that that relationship is not positive just for the captee or the person held captive, but there are positive relationships that come out from the captor as well. So Olson, specifically the Stockholm captor, had said that the compliance of the hostages made it harder to kill them. He thought it would be simple. He thought it'd be easy when it started. And it actually forced them to get to know each other during the ordeal because there was nothing else to do. So you can't help but get to know people when you're stuck in a situation with them. I mean, you and I have been in vans with people for periods of time. Like you can't help but get to really know people during those times. Yeah. And what a lot of different farts can smell like. But. <laughs> <laughs> you learn which bottles are best to pee in while you're driving. Exactly. <laughs> All that is to say that, and that's such a good point that, yeah, there is this, it is a dynamic back and forth relationship that does not just affect one person. And so even the captor might be reluctant to take out any further retributive, retributive? acts against the person being held captive because there's this interlocking relationship where there's a push-pull cost-benefit relationship on both sides of that. And I think let's jump into one of the most famous examples of this, Patty Hearst. Yeah. So Patty Hearst, this is a, a case that happened in the United States and it involved the Symbionese Liberation Army. Or SLA. Yeah, SLA for short. Also, whenever you, you hear Liberation Army... That just immediately evokes for me just all kinds of all kinds of thoughts about like I think of animal liberation stuff like a lot. Yeah. I hear that a lot in my head. Yeah. Anyway, 
So there's a really great book on this by Jeffrey Tubin called American Heiress, and it's about this case. Now, Patty Hearst was the heiress of the Hearst Publishing Empire. And I always like describing things as an empire. Like if you are going to inherit something, don't inherit like an estate. Inherit an empire. That sounds way more nefarious, but also more powerful, I guess. I don't know. It does sound pretty cool. We are the Why We Do What We Do podcast empire. That's what we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> There's no network here. It's an empire. So the story is this is while in captivity, Patty Hearst renounced her family, her country adopted a new name, joined the SLA in several high profile crimes, including bank robberies, vandalism and attempted murder. One of the most famous pictures from this is her holding an assault rifle in a bank without a mask. With this group, I mean, you when you look up the picture, it's pretty intense. It's a pretty intense photo, and it's very damning because when they start talking about this idea of Stockholm Syndrome, they're like, you are very clearly participating in this event. Right. Yeah, so definitely she was caught <laughs> and was taken to trial. And while at trial, she's sort of like, hey, guys, I had Stockholm Syndrome, and that's why I did this. And that was part of her defense. And the prosecution is like, oh, no, you didn't. And so her defense failed and she, she was sentenced to two years in prison, but was released later and pardoned. Wild to think about. Right. So first of all, attempted murder, bank robberies, like all the stuff. She only got two years. It is surprising. Now, was it Stockholm syndrome? is debatable, right? And given the multiple overt opportunities to flee her captors and her unwillingness to do so, it kind of showed that maybe it wasn't really the case that maybe there was, she did have the opportunity and she, maybe she did it on her own volition, but there was credible evidence to suggest that despite the unorthodox capture, she found the escape she was looking for with the SLA and embodied their mission. So it was kind of this, she was captured, but then she joined ranks because that was her way to get out of the captive situation and she was no longer captive. Now she was part of the group. Yeah. I was just thinking if I was like, if I was taken captive by like a board game liberation army uh-huh. <laughs> and I'd be like, you know what, guys, do you have a job here for me? <laughs> yeah. Magic the liberation. Exactly. <laughs> liberate them elves. <laughs> and so Hearst herself has been profiled, profiled, mind you, not, this is not diagnosed, but she was profiled as highly manipulative and possibly free-spirited, those free-spirited folk. Oh, hippies? I know. To the point where she joined whatever group excited or benefited her most in any given moment and then would backstab anyone to avoid sort of the consequence, which is to say, I think that you might describe this as being sort of sociopathic in a way. Yeah, that sounds uncomfortable. Like, (laughs) that sounds not good. I mean, like, not not what you're saying, but like the situation, like, ah, like she could have been, it could have been Stockholm Syndrome or... She's totally pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And especially in some of the situations they looked at, she might have actually been the captor in some of those situations. She might have been the person that somebody else developed Stockholm Syndrome toward. Similar to like, well, maybe not similar to, I don't know that I could actually draw this comparison, but it makes me, it reminds me of the situation going on right now with Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend being involved in some of the recruitment of underage girls and stuff. So I don't think she's making a Stockholm Syndrome claim for herself, although it wouldn't surprise me if she tried. But another example of this, Natasha Kampusch. Yeah, that's how I would pronounce that. Perfect. From Austria. (laughs) And so she was kidnapped and held captive for eight years. It's a long time. And during that time, the kidnapper beat and tortured her, but did show some of that kindness that we talked about. So there was some amount of like benefit that was shown. And although Natasha escaped, her captor later committed suicide and apparently she famously wept over his death. And so that would look like that Stockholm syndrome thing that we've been talking about. That's got to be a very confusing thing for the public to see. It's like, you know, the black and white is you were held hostage. You should not like this person. So them committing suicide should be a relief for you now that you don't have to deal with this person that caused you all this harm. And so that's a that's a confusing image to see somebody who is so upset about somebody who did something so terrible to that person. Trauma bond. Trauma bond. That's what we're talking about here. So there's also Mary McElroy. Mary was held captive in 1933 for only 29 hours for ransom. But I imagine at the time when they when the people were calling, they're like, we're holding off a ransom. They were talking in that like, that's how they talked in 1933. Where's the telephone? That's exactly it. I believe that that's what the yeah. sound clip is. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, yes, we've got Mary here. Um, so at her trial, she struggled to name her captors and later vehemently opposed the death sentence to the main kidnapper, which was later lessened to life in prison. So they ended up getting a lesser charge following her pleas and pleas against the death sentence. And where did her sympathy come from? Interestingly, she did die by suicide at a young age, which is, you know, sad and tragic. And one I do want to be careful about here, too, just thinking about this is this idea that if you don't want to see death come to your captors, that means you have Stockholm Syndrome. I don't think that that's accurate. And I'm thinking, too, of some recent examples of there's the family of the African-American family of someone who was shot in their home. It was that one where the cop like walked into the wrong apartment. They were like on the wrong floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that family actually stood up for that cop and like said, like, we don't want excessive. I might be misremembering the case. I think that's the one that's possible. I'm thinking of another one, but it was a case where like the family was wronged by the death of their loved one. And they said, like, we don't want the death penalty for the person who committed this act. And that's, I think, just showing a sort of humanity and compassion that is does not mean at all that it's Stockholm syndrome. So I don't want to just say that her sympathy toward her or her, her opposition to the death sentence for her kidnapper, for Mary McElroy, was Stockholm Syndrome by itself. I think that there are people who have an ideology against killing other human beings, right? which I maybe hope was a little more widespread, <laughs> but many people are in favor of killing other human beings, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should not. The death sentence is not a great thing. We should probably do an episode on the death sentence at some point in time, too. Yeah, I suppose we should. By the way, is Trauma Bond a band name? Because I feel like it should be. I'm surprised it's not. What kind of band would that be? I feel like they would tour with Pig Destroyer. You think so? Yeah. I was thinking less heavy. I was thinking more like a modern version of Bush. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Maybe they tour with Trivium instead. Yeah, exactly. Trivium would be. That's my thought. But that could be. They could be heavy. They're on Metal Blade Records. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So another famous example here was Michael Moore. Just kidding, not that Michael Moore. Michael (laughs) Scott Moore, author of The Desert and the Sea. And so he was held captive by Somalian pirates for two and a half years in the early 2010s. And he talked about the necessity for figuring out the dynamics of the captors and often found himself negotiating fair treatment and even finding himself in social interactions with those pirates. And again, that speaks to that idea of it being a survival trait, right? The idea that like, hey, I just got to get through this, whatever it takes. I'm willing to have those conversations. I'm willing to maybe be a little bit more flexible because if if I'm not flexible or if I don't try to do something, then I'm dead. Right. And so I think we've more or less enumerated and elaborated pretty sufficiently on essentially the motivation and the sort of rationale for what's going on in these contexts. So let's let's dive into the sort of psychology of this, if you will, and break it down that way. Yeah. So we kind of get away from the idea of criticism, the criticism of victim weakness specifically. The pattern behavior that we're talking about is most likely interpreted as what we would describe as negative reinforcement or relief. Particularly, we're talking about avoidant behavior. So the happier you can keep your captor and unpack their motive and get to understand them and really spend more time with them, the more likely you're going to contact better treatment and avoid those situations where you're going to contact pain or discomfort. Like you are engaging in a lot of situations and a lot of behaviors just to avoid something more serious or painful in that circumstance. Yeah, essentially in that case, you're rewarding their behavior so that you're a resource of reward for them so that they associate, like assuming you're the captive in this situation. If you can be a source of reward for the captor, then they will start to associate you with that positive relationship. And so that could be one of the things that happens. And so because then they treat you better, which means that you get better treatment out of that. And again, there's a practical reason, a practical survival reason to do that. Going back to that quote from that one child. And a lot of people sort of think of this very similarly to the idea of brainwashing. But the idea of brainwashing is simply a behavior like all other behaviors that is influenced by the context in which it's in, where you have preceding events and cues, and then you have a particular type of behavior that is potentially rewarded by getting rid of those aversive situations. That's a broad way of sort of speaking about in a situation where it looks like someone is doing something strange for them. It is the most practical thing that they can do because they're in a context that is desperate and it is dangerous and they alleviate some of the desperation and danger by behaving in such a way that it terminates some of the warnings and cues and 
aversiveness of that context from the person who holds the control over those outcomes. And then just to keep hitting this nail over and over again on the head <laughs> is maybe that's being too generous of this point. It's saying hitting the nail on the head. I'm trying to avoid seeing beating a dead horse because I think it's kind of a weird saying just thinking about it. Well, it's like PETA. Did they put out a bunch of stuff that were like alternate phrases like feed two birds with one scone? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> More than one way to pet a cat, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Feeding a bread horse or something like that. That's right. Something like that. Feeding a fed horse. Feeding a fed was. horse. Yeah. Not to feed a fed horse, but... <laughs> <laughs> Just coming back to this idea of the closed economy and the introduction of a really aversive situation, an unpleasant situation in captivity, it presents a new set of contexts that most people have never been in before and are therefore going to engage in very unique patterns of behavior that contradict what they normally do in a typical environment. And a very important point is what they might say that they would do in a hypothetical situation. Because we all might say what we think that we would do or what we think someone else should do in that situation, but when you're actually in it, you don't know how you're going to respond. And most people, because that is such a novel situation for them, they will respond in ways that guarantees their survival as much as possible, and they maintain their safety and comfort as much as possible. And that might look like doing things that are very unusual for you. Yep, exactly. So another way that this is described too, specifically by Healthline, it's described as a, a coping strategy. And Britannica kind of goes forward to talk about this as enforced dependence. What ends up happening here is the person is in this situation, they're in a tough spot, and they're just learning how to cope to get through it. And this idea of enforced dependence is that there are acts of standard provision that become acts of kindness. So as you start looking at this, it starts off as a coping strategy. I do what I need to survive. Then those small acts of kindness, the small acts of like, I just want to make sure you're fed. I want to make sure you stay alive. Like it might start as like the captor saying, I need you alive for my benefit. And then those standard acts of provision become acts of kindness. Hey, I like Michael. Michael is the one that brings the food every day. Right. Like, you know, Michael is the one that I can relate to. He's the only one that lets us sleep. He's the only one that does this. And so you develop this like, enforced dependence with that person because those provisions become acts of kindness. They're above the standard of general need. Good cop, bad cop. That's it. It also sort of reminds me of the situation. And I just thinking about what we were talking about, where you are going to behave in a way that's different from what you might say that you would do or what you think that you might do of like, when you say thank you to a police officer, when they hand you a ticket. Yeah. And of course, not everybody does that, but in situations where like, are you really thanking them? Are you really grateful that you've received a ticket? No, but you want to avoid being shot or getting a worse punishment. Yeah. And honestly, not to make this political in any way, but there are people who are in the position of writing the ticket who that's part of why they do it is because they know that they have that power and they can have people respond to them in that way of like, I'm going to abuse you and you're going to thank me for it. Yep. I'm not saying that's all of them. I'm not even saying that's most of them, but there are some who, who seek out that kind of position so that they can have that kind of power and control people in that way. So anyway, moving on to we've been talking about this avoidant behavior. The captives might be hypervigilant to attend to the needs and the demands of their captors. And they're making links between the captors happiness and their own happiness. So it's like, Happy wife, happy life, happy captor, happy captive person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Happy hostage situation. That's the second time I've thrown marriage under the bus. I'll stop. It was really just for the sake of the joke. <laughs> That's all. Moving on. The relationship forms in whatever capacity necessary to be so strong that the victim essentially disregards the positive effects of the outside resources like the people who are there trying to help, negotiators, family, police, etc., and thinking that they might have ulterior motives that are not in the victim's best interest. And I think there's also potentially something in here that's a level of an uncertainty about those resources of like, how much can you really do for me? You know, like, is it worth the cost of me getting further abuse to try and reach out to those resources if I don't know that that's actually going to work or change anything in my situation? So I think that's something to consider as well. Right. 
And that kind of leads into the next point about this is that, you know, when we start talking about this avoidant behavior, it's a means of avoiding harsher punishment or death or prolonging worse treatment in that situation. So at least in an effort to devise some kind of escape plan, right? So it may not be that the person is developing an actual positive relationship with the captor. It may be just a means to buy them time to get out. So there are a lot of different ways to look at this. Now, in the moment, in the absence of direct police involvement, especially when there's like a segregated room or an isolated room with the captor or the hostages where they can't see any other variable. They can't see the police. They're not hearing the conversations. They are kept in the dark. They have no information about this. What you might find is that people will, specifically the captor will become their own negotiator and sympathizing with the captor is going to lead to getting your needs met as well. So not only just sympathizing, but collaborating with them, talking with them, complying with them. And all of that is a means to avoid something harsher, something worse down the pike. I mean, it is really definitely a preventative strategy. I'm going to get ahead of it so I don't get hurt. So when you start looking at this rationalization, it might sound like a rationalization for their behavior, justifying why somebody might do something in a situation that they wouldn't normally do, like kind of like Patty Hearst, like why she would rob a bank in a situation where we, she wouldn't normally do that. What we often find is that there is a reason for the behavior and it goes well beyond the idea or the theory of good versus evil. It is what's working for that person in that moment. And the victim is going to engage in behavior that's going to work for them in that moment, especially to justify their actions to to avoid more harsh treatment, to avoid worsening of situations. Most people want to avoid a worsening of situations. And when you're in a hostage situation, it can get much worse or you can collaborate and it might get a little bit better. Now, according to the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin from January 1983, if the syndrome effects rise from the hostages and captors developing a positive mutual rapport, allegedly bonding over their fear of dangerous police tactics, then the police could act as an arbiter to try and negotiate over concessions. So, for example, things like food, drink and publicity and otherwise reject demands for things like weapons, alcohol, drugs and other things that might increase the risk to the hostages. And so if the hostages are kept safe and out of the captures, sort of out of their hair, out of their immediate situation, then the situation will stay less tense. And so some terrorists in the Netherlands and the Japanese army deliberately take actions to prevent any, it sounds like I'm, I said them together, like Netherlands and Japanese army working together. I think they're, they're meant yeah, it's to, a bit, that's a very specific army. Exactly. <laughs> Two different armies. <laughs> some terrorists in the Netherlands army and the Japanese army deliberately take actions to prevent any interpersonal relationships to be formed by hostages and personnel be it via blindfolding, language barriers, segregation, etc. That is definitely something that will prevent the risk of some kind of Stockholm syndrome coming up or, you know, kind of getting the cold feet in that situation, right? Now, if the law enforcement response is to ideally increase the likelihood of caring behavior by the captors, then they can reinforce these behaviors of the captor in some desirable ways. So basically what they can do is they can actually provide concessions or negative reinforcement, like the removal of visible threats from snipers. They can, they can provide basically all these rewards to the captors that work to improve the safety of the hostages in that situation little by little. This is so interesting and really kind of clever how this is thought out. And it requires an intense coordination between tactical and negotiating personnel. But so for example, going back to this piece of sort of negative reinforcement for the captor, and what that means is that a strategy they might employ any captors who are holding people captive, turn this off now. You don't need to know the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> what they might employ is they might place extra threat indicators, such as snipers, in the area, but they don't even have bullets in their guns. They're only there to use to withdraw as pawns. So they're like, we well, are going to put up 50 snipers. Only like 10 of them have bullets even, but 40 of them are going to be there so that what we can say is if you do X, then we will take away these snipers. And so we'll remove some of the threat. And so they're, they're sort of function as pawns and it shines a spotlight at the window to re reduce visibility of them. It's another thing they can take away to make false drilling sounds or other distracting sounds to try and confuse the captor or other things they can take away. So they basically <laughs> introduce a whole bunch of aversives that they can take away dependent on cooperation from the captors and other uh, appropriate behaviors that they might do. All I could think of in that moment was the guy from police Academy. Like he's the person they bring in to make the drilling sounds and to do that, to like confuse the captors. He's just like, he's standing like near the door and there's a gun. Yep. With a megaphone and everything. That sounds really how great good. would that be? 
That'd be fantastic. So, <laughs> you know, I, another one too is when we talk about the idea of positive reinforcement for the caring behavior for the captors themselves, like, you know, the negotiators can bring maybe a box of cold cuts instead of pre-made sandwiches. So it says like, Hey, you know, you're following these rules. We're trying to get you out of here. We're trying to negotiate with you. Let's go ahead and give you bigger and better rewards. The more caring behavior you engage in. And so as you kind of set up these different negotiation tactics and you set up these, these moments where you can reinforce that behavior, you could use this idea of more powerful reinforcers in those moments. Well, and specifically the the cool thing that I found on the delivering like ingredients for a sandwich, what they're trying to get at is having the captor and the hostages work together to make their food. And so like if they just deliver a whole sandwich, they just unwrap it and eat it. But if they deliver the ingredients, then they have to like put them all together, which requires some amount of cooperation and coordination and working together that builds some more of those sort of positive relationships with something that everybody loves, which is food. That is, again, just another sort of clever tactic of how do we include some very specific contexts to kind of force cooperative behaviors to occur and force a positive relationship to facilitate so they're less likely to kill hostages. Because no matter how you feel about how you want those captors to be punished, the ultimate goal is less harm to captives right? and f- more free hostages right? and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so essentially the hostages are encouraged to behave in ways that should help them avoid violence. Like that's the whole thing. It's interesting to think of like shaping behavior in that context, right? Like right. like shaping up somebody's behavior and like really kind of taking those baby steps. And I think that's a thing that people don't understand about hostage negotiations or negotiations in general. Like it's a long game. It's not a sprint to the finish line. I mean, it's urgent, but it's one of those things where you have to take it delicately to prevent additional harm. Now, for further review of the Stockholm police tactics, like the quiet drilling, the invisible police deployment, all that, those situations might only have been increasing the danger while doing nothing to increase caring behavior. So there are sometimes where those coercives or those things that, you know, they signal a larger threat, those can actually cause more problems if they're not done systematically and in a way that's going to work towards benefiting the hostages in that situation. And that can have the hostages specifically feeling anger toward those police. Like you're making things worse. You're coming in here and you're trying to do all this sneaky stuff and you're not trying to increase more appropriate behaviors. So like the police are creating such a dangerous situation that the captors almost have to protect the hostages from the police. Yeah. They're making the situation more dangerous. And so like that makes them that much less likely to be on the, on the side of the police. So again, less of a like sympathy for the captors than it is like, where are we the best off? And right now it seems like the police tactics that are being employed are making things worse. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's go ahead and wrap this up with our main take home points here. So again, just going back to this FBI law enforcement bulletin of 1983 quote, in describing these events, writers should be careful to note that the Stockholm syndrome is only a label for the rapport that may develop between the involved parties and is not an entity which produces that rapport. The phenomenon can be observed and studied in the same ways used to examine other behaviors, end quote. I think that's just such a succinct and direct way of describing that Stockholm syndrome is maybe a better way of describing the kind of relationship that might develop and not explaining what that relationship is or how it developed. Right, exactly. And so the Bolton goes on further and talks about a behavior analytic approach to these hostage situations and specifically says, quote, this kind of analysis is a radical departure from the descriptive work done in the past by identifying selected classes of behavior and using established techniques for bringing about behavior change. It may be possible to resolve successfully a higher proportion of hostage situations. End quote. I love when behavior analysis finds its way into places like this. That's right. Behavior analysis unit, criminal minds. I love it. <laughs> It's a real thing. (laughs) So while initially studied as a syndrome of particular behavior and believing that hostages nearly feel desperately sympathetic toward their captors, focus has more recently shifted toward seeing how hostage behavior is heavily adapting in the moment to increase the odds of their survival. And I think generally decrease the aversiveness of that situation as much as possible. And so I think that's sort of the, one of the main take home points as well. And I think I'll just, I'll add one more as well for myself, which is that, The whole point of all of this is that Stockholm syndrome is not a clear diagnosis. It's not an explanation. There is a practical reason that this kind of rapport might develop. And like we are, again, we are social cooperative creatures, our species. That is one of our characteristic features. And so in these situations, we behave in 
that way that is social cooperation, even when it looks like we are under duress. And that might mean sometimes that there is general sympathy, but a lot of the time, I think it is just practical survival strategies. I agree. That's pretty much my biggest take home point is like, it seems like it's something that maybe is out of the norm for that person, or it's hard to understand. But just from the perspective of I'm in a situation I need to survive, that's really kind of the core motivation in this situation. It's not to become best friends with this captor or to try to break into the hostage business. It's really (laughs) more the idea that, you know, you're just trying to get out of the situation and you're doing anything and everything you can to get out of that situation to maintain your safety. Perfect. And I think this is tangentially related to the idea of brainwashing, although I think it's worth really doing a deep dive on that at a later time. But I think that I would say Stockholm syndrome is not brainwashing. I agree. Perfect. Do you have anything else to end on with uh, Stockholm Syndrome? Nope. I think that's a good place to end. Perfect. All right. We have a piece of listener mail. So this one comes from Melissa and she says, hi, first. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) Hi, Melissa. She says, first, I would like to let you know how much I love your podcast. Thank you. It's really great to hear. She says it has been life changing for me and I'm not exaggerating. Wow. I'm flattered. Flattered. Yeah. Absolutely. But anyways, I wanted to ask why it's so difficult for women to hold back tears when they're uncomfortable. Why for some of us, it's so hard to communicate without crying when we're angry or uncomfortable. And what can we do to avoid this? I feel that this is a physical reaction and extremely hard to control when it starts to happen. And she went on to say that she read about a technique of digging your fingernails into your palms while talking to try and distract your brain that it's worked sometimes. I'd love to hear you guys talk about this. And so Thank you for the question. I actually went ahead and just added that to a list of topics for an upcoming episode. I don't know when we'll get to it, but it's it's on the list now. Cool. Which is something we will definitely take on. I emailed her back as well. But I think just as a direct follow-up to that, I think the ability to control your crying to situations, I I think, is not in any way inherent to women. And there's definitely a combination of learning to control that emotion with some of the physical reactions that are sometimes involuntary to certain things, certain stimulus events and whatnot. I think we'll dig into that deeper when we take on the episode, but the great question and thank you very much for the kind words and thank you for writing in. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate it. Perfect. Okay. Well, let's do some recommendations. recommendations so my recommendation this week is music i love music so much i listen to music all the time just music generally just music in general just generally okay. music that's my great that's actually a great recommend <laughs> that's a fun recommendation i recommend fun <laughs> i recommend fun i recommend things you like just a couple of weeks ago at the time of this recording a band that i used to really like when i was younger put out a new record it's been 22 years since they put out a new record whoa If you are not familiar, my recommendation this week is a band called Hum, and I recommend going to listen to all of their albums. They got really big in like 95, 96 with their record, You'd Prefer an Astronaut, which has the song Stars on it. And when you hear it, you'll be like, I know that song. I've heard it. They put out a record two, three years later called Downward is Heavenward, which is also really great. But their newest record is called Inlet, and it's available and you can listen to it. And it's just really good. Somebody said that they're the loudest band they've ever seen live. Wow. But they're like this really cool shoegaze type of band, which is really cool. Hmm. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I've actually made this recommendation before, but I'm going to make it again just because I think it's worth reiterating the point. And that is the podcast, the Behavioral Observations Podcast. And it's just, it's a great podcast. It's a great resource. If you are a behavior analyst, you can get CEUs from some of the podcast episodes. There was a relatively recent episode following the protests with some African-American behavior analysts speaking about their experiences, which I thought was very powerful and very moving. Anyway, it's a great podcast and I'm going to recommend that one. So that's my recommendation for today. That's perfect. A re-recommend. It's a rerun on recommendations. And I backed that one too. It's a first re-recommend, but I was listening to the last episode that came out and just remind and the one before that and just reminded of like, I'm glad we have such good podcasts out there in psychology that are like that. Yep. I agree. It's nice. It's refreshing. It's like there's why we do what we do and then behavior observations. <laughs> and right next to behavior observations is ABA inside track and drinking from the toilet. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm totally, totally kidding. I'm just making fun. But uh, those are those are the great podcasts out there. So that's it. Cool. All right. Anything else? Nope. That's it. 
Okay, that is Stockholm Syndrome. You now know what there is to know. Thank you so much for listening to us today. If you have experienced Stockholm Syndrome and would like to tell us about it, then feel free to let us know. If you have any strong opinions about this and agree or disagree or want to share some wisdom or anecdotes or whatever, we're happy to hear those. If you want to tell us about your favorite bands or favorite podcasts, we're definitely happy to hear and share those as well. So reach out to us on our social media platforms at WWD podcast. That is also our email info at that string of initials and where you'll use reach me. If you reach out the email, most of the other places you'll be speaking either to Shane or Amber. And if you'd like to even suggest a topic that you'd like to hear, we're happy to hear those things. If you'd like to support the show, you can join us on Patreon. You can also just leave us a rating and a review. If you really don't like something we said, we'd prefer uh, communication rather than a poor rating, but you know, that's up to you. And that's just a way that you you can help support, get the word out there and whatnot. And of course, share this episode or this podcast with a friend. And with that, we're done on this topic. So this is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.